The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. Not doing it. Shares of Nike sharply lower at this hour on a revenue miss and a softer-than-expected outlook. Is this the latest sign of a consumer starting to stumble? We'll do a deep dive straight ahead. Plus, the least magnificent. Hard to believe that Apple is up nearly 50% this year. It's the worst performer among the so-called Mag 7, though. Can it go from the bottom? To the top in 24, we'll debate that. And later, Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk have fattened up their bottom lines on the obesity drug boom. Will the -the off-the-charts demand and not enough supply hurt potential growth in the new year? We'll break that down. I'm Melissa Lee, coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Dan Nathan, Karen Feinerman, Guy Adami, and our guest trader for the evening, Lori Calvacina from RBC. Welcome, Lori. And we start off with Nike swooshing lower. The sports apparel giant warning of weaker revenue going forward. It also announced plans to cut $2 billion in costs over three years. Nike's earnings call just kicking off. Our own Sarah Eisen's got the very latest. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Melissa. So this is a bit of a good news, bad news situation for investors. On the good news front, Nike is really ramping up the profitability here. That was evident in both the numbers and the comments in the release. A dollar three cents per share was a big beat. Gross margins came in better than expected as well. You mentioned the cost savings plan they're announcing, $2 billion. They say they're going to do that by simplifying product assortment, increasing automation and technology, streamlining our organization, i.e. job cuts, and leveraging our scale, Nike says, to drive greater efficiency. In the release, this is unusual. The CFO, Matt Friend, is quoted by saying, we are shifting toward more profitable growth as we look ahead to a softer second half revenue outlook. Those comments, I think, getting a lot of attention because they are warning about the second half of the year. And reminder, Nike just reported its second quarter. That was also evident in the numbers today. 1% overall revenue growth, Revenue growth in its key market, North America, shrinking in the quarter, excluding currencies. Europe, shrinking in the quarter, excluding currencies. Nike did manage to grow about 8% in greater China, but that was a step down from the double-digit growth that we have seen in that region for Nike in recent quarters. Also just want to highlight some other areas where they're seeing slower growth. Digital, for instance, sales up only 4% there. Wholesale, which is the department store channel, down 2%. So I think that really rings true of what what the CFO is saying about the softer second half revenue outlook. We'll learn more from the conference call, which just kicked off. They usually share specific guidance toward the back end of the prepared remarks after they talk up the innovations and and how strong the brand is. Expect to hear a lot about the Olympics, which are gearing up as well this year for next year for Paris and what Nike has planned. But I think the big focus will be on the demand environment which is the not-so-good news part of this story. And clearly, Nike is sensing a shift here when it comes to consumers. Karen's got a question for you, Sarah. Yeah, hi, okay. Sarah. Hi. So the inventory, that looked like very good shape. So it, looks, it seemed to me like maybe they knew during the quarter that they were seeing some softness. I mean, they ended up, their, their turnover was excellent, and that inventory was very good. So when did they kind of get wind of this, or are they sort of shifting and just going toward higher margin business because those margins were good? Yeah, I mean, I think they're going to a higher margin business, which is clear, and they're, they're trying to control things that they 
can control, which is why the shift into more profitable growth. And with that comes the inventory management. I don't know exactly when in the quarter they started to realize that because from what I've heard, they had a very strong Black Friday, for instance, and Cyber Monday. But I, I don't think it's surprising. We've heard it from other retailers as well, uh, specifically on Target and Walmart, on general merchandise, that the consumer's looking for value and has slowed down. And I think hearing it from Nike as well sort of jibes with that fact, and they are able to manage the profitability picture in the face of that. The release does seem to be much more conservative than the company normally is, Sarah. And I'm just wondering if you can sort of characterize that for us and give us a sense of, is it really? Because it's it sounds like they're they're being a little defensive about their business right now. Cost cutting. They're also warning of softer, you know, growth in the second half. I think that's a change. I think the announcement of the two billion dollar cost savings program is new. First of all, the fact that Matt Brown is saying a softer second half revenue outlook, that is unusual to have that kind of tone in a Nike report, especially lately in a Nike report. Look, it's, it's still a category leader. And, you know, by all accounts, they've got these, these good new innovations that are hitting the market. I think there will be questions on the call because of this, Melissa, about full price and whether they're able to drive margin that way, hold the line there if the demand environment really is weakening. But I agree with you in terms of the defensive posture. I, I get that from the release. We don't usually get that from Nike in the release. And I think that's the point they're trying to make but they're also trying to cheer up investors um, and, and drive profitability in, in what we saw in margins and say there's more to go here on that story. All right. Sarah, thanks so much. Great to Thank see you. you. Sarah Me Eisen. Too. What do you think of Nike guy? It's a lot here, right? So we had a robust conversation last night in absentia. You were obviously doing I, I your, heard some of that. I, you know, when you said that, you were listening to this. I thought it could trade up to 128 in two earnings. I think it got up to 123. So that was wrong. So what do you do now? Karen mentioned inventories. Last quarter, they were down 10% off a decent sales growth. That was good. And I think that helped margins this quarter. Now inventories are down 14% year over year, which should continue to help margins. And it is a bit of a margin story. But you know what? Unfortunately, it's a North American story as well. And 45% of their revenue comes from North America, which is now down 3.5% year over year. That's concerning on top of a $2 billion in cost savings on a company that does close to $60 billion in revenue. That's a significant number. What do they see that the market isn't seeing? Question is, where do you buy the stock? What's the right valuation? I think it goes lower than 115 now. I don't think it gets down to the September low, which was 98. But somewhere between 105 and 108, I think it settles in. It's interesting that we're spending so much time talking about margins and inventories and the like. And, you know, if you look at that print that they just had at 44.6%, I think the street was looking for 44%. For the back half of the year, expected about 46% margins. So, like, when you ask at what point did they start to put some of this sort of inventory controls in place or start thinking about profitability, I look at the 46% in the back half and I say that's probably not particularly likely. And, you know, you see this sort of action. They're putting these, they're taking this charge. They're putting these kind of initiatives in place over the next few years. There's probably another quarter of difficulty, especially if they're warning to that. I mean, I'm just saying like, you know, and, and this is one of the things I think is interesting about some of these late cycle names, some of the things that we took away from FedEx. As we get into the new year, and we start thinking about Q4 earnings and the sort of visibility that a lot of companies have. This might be it. The Micron thing, again, and I'm not trying to tie these all together, but it's kind of an interesting week of earnings now. You know, that is a little, well, to me, it's a bit more cyclical and it's a bit more what's going on. I think this is much more impactful about what the consumer here might be doing and how they're thinking about it abroad. And the yeah. consumer abroad, you're pointing out the China yeah. was weak, Very weak and you wonder 
what does it mean for others right. operating in China? Right. And I was just looking. Starbucks doesn't seem to be doing much in the after hours. But so as Sarah said, this was a quarter of, you know, puts and takes for sure. Mm -hmm. I think um, this inventory thing is very interesting to me. It sets them up well because the inventory continues to shrink, which was such a big issue for them. They started to get their arms around it last quarter, which is why the stock reacted so well. But um, I'm not sure where the, when they got cautious. And so I think it's better margins. But if your overall sales aren't growing, well, that, that's not nearly as good. This $2 billion um, cost control over three years or, or cost reduction over three years, that is a significant amount to their bottom line if they get there. And I don't know what the right multiple is to put on it. I'd like to buy more down, but I agree with Guy. Let it shake out a little. I think some analysts are going to be disappointed with this. And I think that the tone of the call seems somewhat downbeat. Yeah, yeah. downbeat for sure. Um, what does this say, if anything, in your view about the consumer and where we are in the cycle? Well, it's interesting. I think the resiliency of the consumers started to be taken for granted. And I've been in that camp as well, right? And we've had a couple of interesting prints. We had consumer confidence that came in better than expected. We've got Michigan tomorrow. We'll see what that shows. We've had some GDP and consumption data that's come in a little disappointing. So I think the you know, sort of nuggets that they're going to give us about the cadence of consumer health, I think, are going to be really important macro-wise. In North America, I think everyone understands China's been weak. Yeah, Foot Locker's down more than 2%, 2% just about on the back of this. So what do you want to know from the conference call? What, what, what are they seeing about why is this $2 billion of cost savings over the next three years? Where did that how come from? I mean, because we AI. haven't. AI. You know, no, I'm not joking. I'm actually not joking. You think the. Could I, be. I, I they're going to say that or do you think that's oh, realistic? I don't know what they're going to say. I do okay. think that they can operate more efficiently. Yeah, I do. And then in terms of, you know, they're getting their inventory in order. But what do you make of the slowdown? North America is still your biggest segment by far. What's going on with the slowdown in North America? Well, so I obviously work out a lot, right? And so I was on, I was on Nike.com actually just yesterday. That's the workout? Well, no, but oh, okay. I, was, I was looking for a new, a new pair of running shoes, okay? And they have hundreds, if not thousands, of SKUs. Like, it, know, it's it, actually, it's it was mind-numbing. I actually just gave up after 10 minutes, and I, they did not get an order. You know what I mean? So it's kind of interesting. When you think about that, you like you say to yourself, like, it's a little, why, why are you why laughing? Are you no, because oh, I'm, it's you're the only Iron Man on the table. <laughs> no, first of all, it's got nothing to do with that. Oh, really? What are we... You, you shop for sneak. Do people do this? Yeah. I mean, yeah. now on the line. Yes. Yeah. 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 You don't go to the local Nike store. And hasn't digital been years. a huge part of the Nike yes. story? When you were talking yes. about AI, you're talking yes. about efficiency and logistics. You're right. talking yeah. about efficiency. You know, like all yes. that sort of stuff. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, like, like, that's my only point. And again, obviously, I work out a lot. So yeah. the other point <laughs> I want to make is that, you know, you just referenced that move off of the September low when they reported. The stock was down 30% from its 52-week highs. Headed. They could have said anything. You know what I mean? And the stock was going to rally. And now it's rallied 35 or some percent. So I think this is also going to be a story as we get into January. Look at the stock market from January 2022. It looks like a V, you know what I mean, to January 2024. Yeah. If you think about it, I think it gets a lot harder from here. And I think this is when the stock picking really uh, like kicks in. Just one more point I want to think about is the we've seen a lot of supply chain improvement and that's gone right. to people's margins. And I think we're, that's getting a little long in the tooth. So I kind of wish it were something else. Higher pricing, higher average sales price or something, better cost control instead of, Margin, yeah. instead of okay, the supply chain issue is better, so our yeah. margins were better. Um, what kind of consumer buys Nike? And I asked that because for a long time we thought, I mean, Dan, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, for a long, we thought that the, you know, the higher end consumers, a little more insulated, they've got their jobs still, et cetera. But if we are seeing some softness, I'm wondering, Lori, how you sort of impute that onto retail and what parts of retail? 
Well, look, I think, you know, there's, this been, there's been this bifurcation between the high end and the low end, and I would assume that the, their consumers are going to be a little bit more skewed to the high end. That's really where the resiliency has been. And I do think, you know, to kind of Dan's point, Consumer stocks have done really well on the heels of interest rates coming down, and that's historically what's happened cycle after cycle after cycle. Some investors have been saying to me, like, look, you know, look how much yields have already come down. Look at where their forecast to be at the end of next year. Is this trade done? Is this over? I think what we're learning right now is that setup is as important as anything else. Um, they've got some things coming up on the calendar, Guy, as I know you're watching very closely. Tiger Woods' contract with Nike is... Yeah, I'm, I'm laser-focused on that. But they can lose a major, uh, you know, enforcer no, of the brand. Without question, and they will find another major. So I'm with you on that. They'll lose people. They'll get, you know, the cemeteries are filled with irreplaceable people. <laughs> so Nike will true. figure this out. That's not my biggest concern. You know, my biggest concern, again, going back to it is, where did this come from? You know, we're talking about cost savings, $2 billion over three years. What are you seeing? North America slowing down. China, clearly still a bit of a problem, maybe better than expected, but slowing down as well. All this on a backdrop of a company that's been rewarded with a very sizable valuation over the years. Is it justified in this environment? That's what I look for. Um, is this very bad for Foot Locker? It is trading lower in the after hours. It is. I mean, it's had a huge run also. I think, you know, that did, did she say wholesale was down about 2%? That's yes. them. That's mm -hmm. So that's not great for them. Um, yeah, it should be under pressure. So, Lori, you know, one of the things that I think that China is interesting, and I'm just curious, as you think about your outlook for domestic companies here and, yeah. and earnings potential, you know what I mean? We have the dollar come in, input costs, as you guys just mentioned. Like, I feel like enough people, there are not enough people talking about China right now. And I really feel like, like, if you look at the data they have and you look at the deflation, and we're so excited about, you know, disinflation right now, what if they were to export that weakness overseas? Is that a 2024 story for like, a lot of our consumer companies, possibly? It potentially could be. I mean, I think what's interesting on China is the, the negativity has been so deep. I mean, I've come off like two months of like nonstop travel and nobody's really, you know, talking about China that much anymore, which I find absolutely fascinating. But if you look at the funds flow data from EPFR, you're starting to see a little bit of an uptick. So I've been looking into at, China in, into well, I think it's getting less negative. Uh -huh. It's not turned positive yet. So but we're starting to see, you know, this kind of improvement and trend under the surface. So I've actually been talking to people in the last week about, you know, is there opportunity here from a contrarian perspective? And that could translate into too much negativity on the consumer or just the geography as a whole or just rotation out of the U.S. Um, so I'll be curious to see what they have to say on China. Yeah, let's talk about the broader market here. It's a good, good opportunity to segue here because just on Tuesday, I think you had a note out saying that there's like warning signs flashing about yeah. the markets being overbought. What do you see now at this point? Is this just the beginning? So I, I will say, you know, very clearly, I am still in the constructive camp for 2024. We've got a 5,000 target. I'm not sitting here feeling like that's too low at this point in time, though. The big thing that we've seen change since we put our outlook out in mid-November, we did it right before Thanksgiving, is that sentiment has really just done a complete shift. So back at the beginning of November, AAI net bulls were down around one standard deviation below the long-term average. That is typically a pretty strong buy signal. And where we are now, last week we hit one standard deviation above that long-term average. That typically signals a flat market over the next three months and about a 6.5% gain over the next 12 months. So I still think we're going to have a good year, but I do think we just need to sort of have that pause that refreshes. We need to stop and, you know, just take a minute and digest some of these gains, because I do think it's fair to say sentiment's gotten a little too frothy here at the end of the year. 
pause is very different from the kind of pullback that we saw yesterday. Granted, we were up a yeah. percent today on the S&P 500. Um, but in terms of the debate around Fed rate cuts, yeah. do you think we get clarity on that early I think, next year? I think we need some clarity. Um, to be honest, it, it was, you know, I was in Europe last week, so I wasn't, you know, sitting there looking at the news every single minute, you know, when that Fed meeting happened. But it really got to the end of the week, and it just felt like too much had been priced too quickly. And I started to see equity investors really start to worry about that late last week and early this week. So it's not that I don't think the cuts are coming. Our, our team makes a very strong case for why they start in the middle of next year. And if we get more job cuts, right, from big companies like this, that is going to feed that Fed cut narrative. But March, that seems a little too early. $232 of earnings. And so that gets you a 21-ish multiple north of 21. But what's the potential pitfall of that 232? I mean, there's a lot baked in. What is earnings yeah. growth projections? I think almost 13 percent for 24. So the, the last I saw in the consensus bottom up estimate was about 245, 246. And I'm at 232. And I'll tell you, that is another source of real interest in my client meetings recently. The big difference between my number and street consensus is I've got kind of flattish margins versus 2022 down a little bit from this year. The bottom up consensus, not just in, you know, say staples or tech, just about every single sector in the S&P, massive margin expansion is being anticipated for next year. Now, most of the buy-siders I've been talking to the last couple of weeks think the sell-side numbers are too high. They are very sensitive on this margin issue right now, which may be why we're seeing kind of a push to come and say, hey, here's how we're going to you know, continue to defend those margins. But that's a real source of concern. Like, are these profit margin expectations simply unrealistic on the sell-side heading into next year? Do you want to ask a question or no? No, no. I, I do have a question. Okay. Uh, you know, because it's the end of the year, and at the end of the year, you tend to be a little bit more reflective mm. on yeah. what has passed. On everything. On everything. Yeah. Um, but for a strategist, I would imagine it's what you got right and what you got wrong. And I think yeah. a lot of people got wrong uh, the notion that the economy would be much more resilient, that the consumer would really hang in there, and that we would be here at year end, where we are right now. So how do you take that into consideration as we go into next year? And consensus seems to be all on one side in terms of that soft landing narrative. So I still think, you know, I, I've never been in the recession camp. You know, I, I've never called myself a recessionista. We always thought this was going to be sort of a growth scare, something close to a recession, not quite meeting the definition. Um, and that was sort of a tough call to make back in 2022. Um, you know, I will say what I think we got right this year is sort of recognizing that resiliency was there. I think our valuation model is going to probably end up being right on the year. It's been calling for about 4,700 and a low 20s PE. Um, but, you know, we didn't manage our target properly. We were looking at other things that were more bearish. And so we had a target of 4,250. So clearly not, you know, bullish enough. But, you know, as I look into next year, I think we're still going to have debates over the Fed. I think we're still going to have debates over consumer. And I think that's coming at a time when sentiment is frothy. So those could be triggers and take the market down, you know, for maybe reasons that don't quite pan out later on. But I tell everybody, calls today have 60% conviction level. If you say you have 90 or 100, you're lying. Um, so we're just going to have to be, you know, sort of vigilant as the year goes on. How do you feel about the broadening out of the market and maybe even if the broad market doesn't do well, that there could yeah. be sectors that really can do well? So I'm an old small cap strategist, and we pay a lot of attention to that. That is, you know, sort of the destination if a lot of money comes out of this MAG7 trade, the big cap growth trade. I think the big cap growth trade got crowded and valued for and overvalued for good reasons, but there are tactical problems there, and we do need to see some correction. Um, I think that interest rate expectations falling, the you know Fed fears falling, 
that was the first leg of this. I think for that to really continue, you need to see economic expectations improve. Growth stocks and big caps typically outperform when GDP is sluggish. GDP is expected to be about 1.2 next year, 1.8 the following year. That is an environment which this growth trade should bounce back. If those numbers are too low, and I think there is a decent chance they are, we may not know that until a little later in the year, then I think you'll see that rotation trade get a second life. But I do think, you know, people like to beat up. I'm answering so many questions on concentration right now in the MAG-7. I can't tell you how many requests we've done for people. They're not bad stocks. They're there for a reason, but we just may need, again, to see that take a little bit of breather and other parts of the market may deserve to shine for a moment. All right. Uh, coming up, what role are the new InVogue options product, zero-day expiration options, playing on the whipsaw of the market? They're getting much of the blame for yesterday's late-day tumble, but should they? We'll go inside the numbers. But next, the least magnificent member of the Magnificent Seven. Should Apple get booted from the so-called Mag7 because it only was up 50% this year? We'll debate that. More Fast Money right after this. This is Fast Money with Melissa Lee right here on CNBC. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash find your rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Apple may be a $3 trillion stock. Its shares may be up nearly 50% this year. But believe it or not, the tech titan is far underperforming the so-called Magnificent Seven in 2023. In fact, to date, Apple is the worst stock in the group, where names like NVIDIA, Meta, and even Tesla have more than doubled this year. It's also being beat by other mega cap names like Eli Lilly and Broadcom, so are the stock's best days behind it. And, uh, you know, Barron's had an article today questioning it are the best growth days behind it. it certainly looks like it when you take a look at what you're paying for in terms of the growth that it's posted in the past fiscal year. Dan, I feel like I should go I down. Listen, I, feel like it- I think they're doing okay. All right. So I think Apple's doing okay. We're not going to kick them out just yet of the mag seven, but I, you know, this is an argument that we've been talking about for a long mm-hmm. time is that like the growth is not like some of the hyper growth names that have gone from 200 billion in market cap to a billion, like a, an Nvidia over the last year or so. I mean, it's a very mature company. Now they have a disproportionate amount of market share in the smartphone uh, market and, and a lot of, they own all the profitability there. Right. So you think about that. It's just not growing a lot because the end, market is not growing a lot. It's pretty saturated. So for services to grow, right, to justify the valuation at 30 times or whatever, they're going to need to do a whole host of new innovative things. And I think that's part of the argument that I read out of that yeah. uh, Barron's article. So mid-single digits earnings and sales growth. It's One last thing is just astounding. They've been managing this earnings growth because they have bought back $600 billion worth of stock since 2012. They've given back $150 billion um, in dividends since then. So that's one of the reasons why I don't think most folks will 
will ever sell it who are in it right now, even though they're not that innovative as they were 10 years ago. So I sort of agree with everything you're saying, just also the law, law of large numbers, right? You just can't continue to grow at a pace sure. when you're that big. And I do think the thing that you're talking about, about uh, the buybacks, is no longer mathematically helpful. Right. May, they may use the money because they, they don't think they have a better use for it. That may be. But in terms of just, I mean, a lot of the EPS growth that they've had has been materially helped by that. I think the question, though, is do you want to pay this sort of premium above the S&P right. multiple for, you know, what is forecast to be less than 4% revenue growth next fiscal year? Yeah, is that what you want to pay for less I, than 4% or 30 times? So I have it at 29 times next. So for, for the math, it's expected to do $6.53 this year, seven twelve next year. In terms of revenue, call it $400 billion this year, four twenty maybe so. You know, there's the math for you at a company trading close to 29 times. Margins have been not improving. They haven't been declining that much, but flatlining a little bit. And then you obviously have the wild card of what's going on in China. And we talked about it last night because it was a story yesterday that a few different outlets reported. A few weeks ago, the President Xi, President Biden meeting, President Xi said, we will take Taiwan by any means necessary. Not my words. And this has now been reported. That is out there, and the market is not taking that into consideration. That is an absolute existential risk for Apple, a company that benefits from being in probably 300-and-something ETFs or so, where Apple's one of the top 10 holdings. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So you think about this underperformance, say, relative to a Microsoft. So Microsoft made a $10 billion investment in OpenAI to start out the year, and it's gained hundreds of billions of dollars, I believe, associated with that investment and the products and services that they're going to be able to introduce. And so Apple's been nowhere there, right? So the only thing that we've really been able to talk about in Apple in 2023 is Vision Pro. And the headline coming, well, if you think of it from an innovation right, standpoint, right? right. $3,500 right. device. And, and we know, and, and listen, and, and maybe the, the folks there in Cupertino have a longer-term plan how this is going to change computing altogether. And, and maybe that's their view. Maybe that's the bet that they wanted to make. But Apple could have done that. And to Karen's point about the buybacks, they don't really matter anymore. They're not massaging their earnings enough. And you probably, as a shareholder, rather let them make or, or like to see them make a bold sort of move into generative AI using yes. some of that cash then to buy back their stock here. I think they are spending on AI. It's just right. they haven't just they haven't sprinkled themselves with yeah. the dust, right? One other thing, though, to think about when you talk about the multiple is, remember, so much of this business is a hardware business, right? And that multiple is very different. So when you interpolate what does that mean for the services multiple, granted, mm -hmm. it's growing much more quickly, it's a really high number, right? So it should be a much lower multiple overall. The blended should still be a lot lower. I think so, yes, yeah. yes. You have, so it's too expensive. Yes. Yes, there you go. Okay. I could have said that. <laughs> too expensive. That's too expensive. Yeah, nicely she done. So you, know, you had a lot of questions about concentration surrounding right. Magnificent Seven. Can this group still be defensive next year, given the runs that it's had this year? So I think, you know, I, I feel like the trade, you know, that sort of late summer, early fall trade was all about balance sheet. We did this study a couple weeks ago where we looked at the top 10 names in the S&P. So it includes all these plus a couple others over time. And we looked at the rest of the S&P and we did it equal weighted baskets on both. And when you run the balance sheet metrics on those two baskets, just the advantage of these companies is absolutely staggering. So I am pretty convinced that a lot of this last leg was just about Fed fears. And I think going forward, it is about earnings growth and it is about economic growth. And the cyclicals should do better if economic growth expectations improve. And I guess I just have a hard time getting behind a MAG7 story where the earnings growth is in question. There is a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. 
mighty, mighty Micron. The chip stock ripping higher after a blowout earnings report. What the company's CEO had to say that's sending shockwaves through the semi-space. Next. Plus, three, two, one, zero-day options. Is this derivatives darling to blame for Wednesday's roller coaster ride into the red? We'll white-knuckle it with a top industry insider right after this. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to Fast Money. A key AI play revving up the street. Micron surging almost 9% today, a day after reporting a smaller-than-expected earnings loss per share and strong guidance. Micron CEO Sanjay Marotra painting a bullish picture on Squawk on the Street this morning. Demand and supply balance is going to continue to improve through calendar year 24. We call it the year of recovery because we have had such de steep decline in prices and such steep demand supply imbalance over the course of last four to five quarters that 24 will be a year of recovery. So how much room does Micron have to run here? Um, the CEO just said 24 may be a year of recovery and we're up 9%. It's very optimistic translation of what he had to say. And people are saying, you know what, they're going to take the ball and run with it mm -hmm. because this was the trough quarter. They're getting everything bad out of the way. They're going to be not at the forefront of AI. I used that term maybe yesterday incorrectly, but they're going to be involved in a meaningful way. Um, margins obviously will start to improve. They were better than that pre-announcement on November 28th. All things point forward. Answer your question, where can it go? I think the all-time high in the stock was 98-ish back in December of 2021. And it seems, listen, given everything we've seen in the space, I don't think that's that ridiculous a move. There's a case to be made that this is much cheaper from an AI point of view in terms of you want to buy an AI chip. This is a much cheaper yeah, way to go. It's just memory. I mean, like, like that's the thing. I think guys you need more memory. No, I, I know you do, but it's very commoditized. And so the point is, is like as soon as there's a slowdown, I mean, these guys are going to get squeezed on price, right, as they do in every major trend that we've talked about in the last 10, 15 years. Or as long. How many years have you been doing this show, guy? If we make it to January. Which is only a like, week and a half away, so I wow. do hope we make it Okay, fair enough. But, but, like, you know, this is the story of Micron. This is a story of a player like this. And so when I hear that, that next year is the year of this, then I say to myself, well, what is this performance pulled forward? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Coming up. <laughs> a New Year's resolution for weight loss drugs. Can the heavyweights keep growing in 24? Or will supply issues shrink their profits? We'll go inside the numbers. But first, was yesterday's 11th hour sell-off all due to zero-day options? What the new hot trade might have to do with the spike in volatility? We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Back to winning ways after yesterday's sell-off. The Dow up half a percent. The S&P up one percent. And the Nasdaq leading the way up one and a quarter percent. Tesla shares rising three percent today. Retail flow into the EV maker this year eclipsing those into this SPY ETF more than $45 billion. That's the first time a single stock has seen greater flows than the SPY in five years. 
Meantime, reports suggesting that so-called zero-day options may have been behind yesterday's late-day sell-off. But our next guest says the data suggests something else. CBOE's Mandy Xu joins us now. She's the firm's head of derivatives market intelligence. Mandy, great to see you. Hey, Melissa. Great to be on the show. So the data you're looking at shows that actually action was balanced, correct? That there wasn't this force driving stocks lower. Yeah, before I delve into the, you know, the activity of yesterday, I think it's really important to really start high level at the concept of, you know, what drives zero day risk, right? Zero DTE option risk. And I think there's a misunderstanding that high volume in these products equal high risk. And yes, there's a lot of high notional volume on average, about 700 billion a day trade in these zero day options, right? But what matters when we're talking about net, uh, net uh, uh, the market maker risk is not the total volume, but the balance of the volume between buys versus sells, the net positioning, which determines how much market makers actually have to hedge. And what we find is that the net positioning is actually very de minimis relative to the total volume. And therefore, the, the, the risk of these products, we're talking on average only about 0.1% of the average S&P daily liquidity. So let's go to to yesterday's action then and why so many people are pointing to 47.65 puts um, and and vilifying. And I mean, this is a a product that really people want to blame um, a lot of things for. And yesterday is a prime example. So can you walk us through? Sure. So yes, there's a lot of attention being paid to the 4765 strike put in the S&P yesterday. And then as the market kind of fell and went through that strike, people pointed to the high volume in that strike, right? 120,000 contracts traded in that particular strike yesterday. But to my earlier point, high volume doesn't actually mean high risk. So if we break down that flow in terms of what market makers were actually hedging, we see about 61,000 contracts were customers long, 62 with customers short. So it actually remarkably balanced such that the, the net imbalance that market makers were hedging, we're talking about 1,000 contracts, right? 1% of the total volume uh, that actually market makers had to hedge. Um, and if we kind of um, uh, extend that analysis across all strikes, because again, market makers are not just hedging one particular strike. What we find is that yesterday, throughout the sell-off, for most of the afternoon, market makers were actually net long gamma, which is just a technical term that tells you that there were long options and they were hedging in the opposite direction of the market move. So as the market was selling off, market makers were actually buying futures to hedge their option position. So if anything, they were the stabilizing force in yesterday's sell-off, not the destabilizing force. Mandy, uh, this is Lori. Uh, whenever you know things in the options market end up going a little bit haywire, my, the question that comes to me is how much is retail driving this? And is this like what we saw in the pandemic? And I'm just curious whether you're thinking about yesterday or just in general with these zero-day uh, options. What's your view on that? Yeah, that's a great question. So in zero-day options, we do see a fair amount of retail activity. So our estimate is about 40% retail, 60% institutional. So I, I would say a pretty healthy balance. But to your point about, you know, is this like, for example, what we saw in the pandemic? Certainly, I think there's a tendency for people to conflate the two, given that they happened in quick succession. But what I would say is that the activity that we're seeing in zero-day option could not be more different to what we saw in 2021 during the pandemic, you know, mean stock era, right? That was a time where the option activity we saw was very much one way. It was investors buying upside calls to speculate on the direction of stocks, right? And and, and all of it was bullish activity. And of course, when the market started going down in 2022, all of that activity dried up. 
Um, what we're seeing, SPX, zero-day options, is a very balanced um, uh, flow in terms of you know investors buying these options, either for hedging or for speculation, but also a very significant percent of the volume is investors selling these options for income generation. So that diversity of use case, you know, again, is why the balance, the flow in the, the zero-day options is so balanced and why we continue to see you know, very robust flow in zero-day options, regardless of what the market is doing, whether it was last year, market down down 20 percent or this year market up significantly. Um, it's been very consistent and agnostic to the direction of the market. Last quick question, Mandy, and I understand for the SPY, you know, it's it's much it's deep, it's liquid, et cetera. But there are also um, zero data expiration op- options on single stocks, on ETFs. And are there opportunities in in sort of the more thinly traded areas to cause more volatility where there isn't as much balance as we're seeing in SPY? So not quite in single stock yet. So yes, SPX by far is the deepest, you know, most liquid market uh, where we have zero-day options. We also have it right now. When we call zero-day options, really talking about the availability of expiry, you know, every single day. Um, so right now we have it in the SPX family. So SPX, SPY, E-mini, um, and we also have it in the NASDAQ family. So NDX and the Qs. Um, right now there are actually no, no zero-day options available at a single stock level. And I think, um, you know, there's definitely going to be logistical challenges in terms of extending it to single stocks. One of, I think, the, 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 the unique features of index options is the fact that it is cash settled. So the risk you know, of settlement at, at expiry is you know, very, very de minimis relative to, say, a physically settled ETF option or single stock option. So that is something, something I think, you know, definitely a hurdle that the market needs to overcome if they were to expand this to single stocks. Okay. Mandy, thanks so much for joining us. Good to see you. Thank Mandy you. Mandy Shu, CBOE. So the last point you made about cash settlement, right? So the fact that like this activity that happened yesterday happened at 2.30, right? It was kind of a dull market. Uh, liquidity is kind of low here. And again, you know, no one has um, their finger on the pulse, like how these things were hedged, what else was trading in other parts of the market. Supposedly there were some short dated Tesla puts that were also like there was there, there was some testing. There was of the liquidity in this market. And so the one thing I'll say about these and I've been trading options for a while here, um, you know, for years and years, this is new cash settlements. Interesting. This is pure speculation. If you were making a bet, it's not that different than trading futures, but, but you know, and you are stopped out if you're long them. But the idea of selling them, being cash settled, there is, you know, potential risk if there are big moves one way or another. Most retail do not have the ability to kind of hedge the risk that some of these dealers might have done with futures or other expiries and the like. So to me, I think they pose a tremendous risk because they're, risk because they're just pure speculation right now. And it's not just institutions. It's a lot of retail. And I don't think we actually know what they could do if a bunch of things came together at one time. Let's say there was some horrible tape bomb. We've all traded when there's something that has happened that has the potential to move the markets one way or another. You know, that sort of thing. We don't know how much it might exasperate something that's going on there. So quickly, I'd feel much better about today's bounce if the VIX actually moved in a corresponding way. You had a big move yesterday in the VIX to the upside. Today, the VIX actually traded up to 14 and a half closed unchanged and you know i don't want to get too wonky like we used to do in the options action show yeah, we did risk more make less That's risk less make more <laughs> risk less make something more. like that but i'll say this there's when you're short volatility it it's a great thing you earn and you put it away and you put it in your pocket until it goes wrong and yesterday was a glimpse of what happens when you're short vol you saw how quickly the market started to feed on itself to the downside. So just something to watch today in terms of the VIX. All right, coming up, shares of Nike taking a leg lower in just the last few minutes, now down almost 10%. We'll get the very latest on the outlook for the rest of the year right after this. 
got an update out of Nike's conference call. The company adjusting its full-year outlook. Nike now says it expects revenue growth to be slightly negative in fiscal Q3 compared to double-digit growth a year ago. Fiscal Q3 is a quarter that we are in for Nike. Growth in Q4 will be in the low single digits. There's also some more color uh, in terms of that big $2 billion cost-cutting plan. They say that they will complete it um, by the end of fiscal 24, which would imply somewhere around mid-year of uh, next calendar year for us. So that's pretty fast. Yeah. Yes, it uh, is pretty fast. So that's quick to the bottom line. Yeah. I think I also saw China and EMEA, uh, your Middle East, they lowered that as well, which isn't surprising given that quarter was really not right. so good. Yeah, and originally, quickly, when I first saw that cost cutting, I saw it over three years. And now yes. you're telling me it's over the next six I- months effectively, which is a bit accelerated. So I don't know where that came from, but that is something that's probably one of the reasons it took this next leg lower. Why? That's a positive. I, 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 don't, I, I don't think so. That's just me. I look at it a little differently, okay. but that's what makes markets, right? Yeah. Uh, this is a really a, a staggering decline in the after-hour session, down 10%. Even well, no, no. To Guy's <laughs> point, I think he makes a really good point. It's like the, the acceleration of that on that sort of, you know what I mean? Like, what do they see? Do they so see? they've just guided down the current quarter that they're in. Um, I, I don't know. You know, it's not, I mean, listen, the stock was trading at 110 at the start of December. So it's back there, you know, like, like that's everything. I mean, you know, investors, like, let's let's kind of pull back a little bit. Let's take a, take a breather. It's been a big year. You know what I mean? Like, I just think there's a lot of folks that are really over their skis about stuff right now. And they're about to get corrected, in my opinion, by what the companies have to say. If you go in after a 35% rally and you're not, like, at the very cautious, you know what I mean, like, cautiously optimistic, like, I don't know. I'm, I'd be a little surprised by that. The flip side of that is, like, Micron, we just heard that CEO, they lost money this year. You know what I mean? Like, and they swung to a loss last year, and they're expected to swing to a profit next year. So, like, caution, you know, I don't know. Um, by the way, Foot Locker is now down 5% on the back of this uh, leg lower in shares of Nike. We haven't heard yet, as far as I know, about the sort of the qualitative um, trajectory of the slowdown during uh, the last quarter. So that'll be interesting to hear in terms of, you know, um, some data points to impute on other retailers right now. But Lord, does this make you even more concerned? Well, look, I, I just, you know, as we were sort of listening to the conversations between consumer and tech, you know, I've just reminded of the fact that we've been in very different earnings cycles in different parts of the market. And tech really had its earnings recession already, and we're in recovery mode. And we're going into the stickiest part of the consumer cycle. Um, you know, and I think I, I think we're just in this environment where we're having, having pain points at different points in time. And investors clearly seem to want to buy recovery right now and, and, you know, buy a situation where we're coming out of something as opposed to heading into it. Carrie, you want to add that? One little thing I saw on the call that they had some big periods that were nice. Back to school was good. Black Friday. Um, and then in between that, some softness. So now we're in between that. Sounds like more softness. Right, right. Um, again, Nike down almost 11% right now after hours. Coming up, New Year resolutions. Weight loss drug makers Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly have been on a tear this year. But can they keep it up in 2024? That story's next. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's a make or break moment for the heavyweights of weight loss. Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk posting huge gains in 2023, but investors are still worried about supply being too slim for the gains to continue into 2024. Angelica Peebles joins us now with the skinny on a pivotal year for GLP-1 makers. Angelica. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, the big question next year is how many more people can get these drugs. And the answer to that will depend on a few things like supply and insurance coverage. 
Novo Nordisk is planning to send significantly more Wagobi to the U.S. next year. And Eli Lilly is saying it'll double GLP-1 manufacturing capacity by the end of this year, with plans to ramp up even more as they launch their new obesity drug, ZepBound. But the reality is that even still, that probably won't be enough. These are really complicated drugs to make, and there are tens of millions of adults in the U.S. alone who could benefit. And not everyone's going to be able to get these drugs, though. Of course, insurance coverage is still a big issue. Novo estimates about 50 million Americans are eligible for Wegovy with private insurance. But Eli Lilly is saying that only about 5 million people are actually on GLP-1s. That could start to change, especially if the drugs can show that they help with other health conditions like sleep apnea. And we'll get more data on that front in the new year. Melissa? Angelica, I'm curious, in terms of the, the bottleneck and the source of the problem, is it, I mean, obviously it's just making the drug itself, but how much of it is the, the pen um, versus making the drug itself? Yeah, the pen is a big issue, and Eli Lilly has talked a lot about how it plans to um, to introduce these pens, that ha- these you know, multi-use pens. But the problem is that scaling anything takes time. And even um, Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk are spending billions of dollars to expand their manufacturing in Europe. But those will take years, those facilities, to come online. So this is just a really slow process. Angelica, thanks. Angelica Peebles. Quickly, Guy, what do you think? think? Well, we can talk Lilly and, and Novo all you want. Look at the move in Medtronic off of a hugely oversold condition from 70 to 82. These stocks were unduly, I think, punished. Those stocks are where you want to be. Up next, final trades. Final trade time, Lori. Still buying small caps. Karen. Yeah, Nike, want to buy more, but wait three days. Nothing to do yet. Dan. Yeah, yesterday's volatility leads me to CME Group. Why are you laughing, Guy? What's so funny? What is so funny? What did you? It doesn't matter. It's inside baseball. It doesn't matter. Great to have you back. I love that jacket. Very smart. Uh, Delta Airlines still has room to 45. All right. Thank you, Lori, for joining us tonight. Lori Calvacina, RBC. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 